Well, I want to begin by thanking Pete, Bob, Dave, the rest of the staff for doing such a stellar job the last seven months or so, seven, eight months, and give thanks to the Lord for all that he's done. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, you are so gracious. You are so good. Lord, I'm reminded of the scripture where John, your servant, said that you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. And thank you, Lord, for the way you've enlightened our lives, the light you've brought into the community. And there's no darkness in it, Lord. Lord, we stand in awe at how great you are. And that's what this building is all intended to portray, that we serve and love a great God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you turn this morning to 1 Kings chapter 8, where we look at a building dedication performed by King Solomon of Israel. As you're turning there, let me tell you where it all began with me. It all began with a bag of Cheetos. It was 1981 when I was driving home from a Bible study, going back down to Huntington Beach where I was living. I was frustrated because I wanted the Lord to use my life in a way that He hadn't up to that point. And I asked Him, Lord, Lord, what do I have to do? What's the key? What's the secret? As I was driving down Beach Boulevard and looked on the left-hand side, there was a new building complex being erected with a sign that said two words, available now. And they were selling off spots, slices of this building complex, and you could call the number because these spots, though the building wasn't done, they were available now. But imagine me, I'm praying, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to be? And I saw the words, available now. Be available right where you are. So I said, I get it. It's not about what you'll do in the next year, in the future, but what you want me to do and be right now. You say, well, I don't get it. You said it all began with a bag of Cheetos. Well, that's right. Because I parked my car at the beach and I sat on a lifeguard tower and I said, Lord, I want to be available to you right now in my life. What should I do? Just then I heard the rustling of a Cheeto bag underneath the lifeguard tower. Now keep in mind, this was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'm thinking, what on earth is somebody doing underneath the lifeguard tower at 1 o'clock in the morning eating a bag of Cheetos? So I thought, it must be a divine setup. The Lord wants me to be available now. So I got off the lifeguard tower, looked underneath, and sure enough, there's a guy eating Cheetos. And, uh, I shared the gospel with him, led him to Christ, went home awfully excited about just being available right where I am. Every day is a new experience and a new opportunity. That excitement generated within me the idea of what might the Lord do next. 
I then asked a few months later, Lenya Mae Farley to be my wife. And surprise of surprises, she said yes. That was miracle number one. Then we moved out to Albuquerque and went on the greatest, up to this point, adventure of our lives. I've always loved adventure. I've always loved risk. And she was willing to go on one with me. And we watched the Lord do great things. This church was called the fastest growing church in America in the late 80s and the early 90s. And we were amazed at that. We still are. Um, Now, I get asked about how things are going in California. And I'll tell you, they're going great. The Lord's doing great things. Uh, The church is doing well, uh, very well. Uh, Sunday nights at Costa Mesa, having a great time with that, able to broadcast those studies around the country. Uh, My mom's doing well. I know people have asked about that. Um, The difficult part in all of it is missing you. After 22 and a half years, you get close to people. They become your family. And in my thinking over the last seven months, as so many of your faces have come to mind, it's like having in your head a funeral service, in a sense. In the sense that you think about babies that you dedicated, they grow up, you watch them fall in love, you get to perform their wedding, you watch them have children, and then they say, hey, you dedicated me so many years ago, and here's my child, would you dedicate my baby? So that full cycle of life that is so exciting to be a part of. Um, I thought of the scripture in 1 Corinthians where Paul said, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you don't have many fathers, and I have begotten you through the gospel. And so to stand here and see you and see this and realize that I've been in that position humbly to be a father in the faith to so many of you has been thrilling. And I'll tell you this, I don't consider that I've left I consider that I have been sent out by you. I'm just one of your missionaries, so to speak, in California. Um, We've come today to dedicate this building, and it's a building that's been in my heart for years. Uh, Rick Davis on the video was saying the building changed over time, and part of the reason for that is I'm sort of schizophrenic. I changed my mind on so many of these elements over time, and my poor staff had to try to keep up with all that. But it was always in my heart to, in building this and in seeing the Lord raise up this work, to leave Albuquerque a better place than when we came, spiritually speaking. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple in Jerusalem. A few things you should know. The temple in Jerusalem was considered to be the very epicenter, the heart of the nation. It's where it all happened. Everything emanated from that central place, the temple, the worship center in Jerusalem. In fact, even in the Midrash, the writings of the Jews, the Midrash Kodeshim, the rabbis said the heart of the world is the nation of Israel. The heart of the nation of Israel is Jerusalem, and the heart of Jerusalem is the temple. That was their thinking. 
even to this day, the Jews in Israel refer to the Temple Mount with three words. Har Habayit, mountain of the house. Mountain of the house, the house being the temple of God. Now, the construction of the temple began about 480 years after the exodus from Egypt. It took seven and a half years to build this structure, so we sort of got them beat. Uh, it took us longer to build this thing than seven and a half years. Uh, here's what's interesting about the construction of that temple. You couldn't hear a hammer. You couldn't hear a chisel at the Temple Mount during all those years of construction. What they would do is hew the stones away from the Temple Mount with such precision, and some of them 80 to 100 tons, that by the time they moved them to the Temple Mount, they were so precise as they laid on top of each other, you couldn't slide a knife in between those stones. Beautiful building even to this day, Uh, As far as the archaeological digs reveal, it was amazing. Uh, The disciples in coming out of the temple at one occasion in the New Testament from the Mount of Olives made reference to this when they said, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. But Here's the question this morning that I want to cover. What's the purpose of it all? Why build buildings? What is the purpose of having a temple? or a church building like this. And I want to give you four reasons. Number one, buildings should point to God's faithfulness. Buildings should point to God's faithfulness. Look with me at verse 22 of chapter 8, 1 Kings. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and your mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. God keeps his promises. And when Solomon walked in and he saw that temple all finished on this day of dedication, seeing the temple reminded Solomon of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Too many people make buildings all about the building or all about them. One of the things I've always loved about you, about this congregation, is that you came here, you thronged here when there wasn't a wonderfully finished product. You came here when the floor was still asphalt. We pulled up the AstroTurf. Uh, You came here when there was insulation falling from the ceiling on your heads. You came here in the summer when there was no air conditioning. Imagine that. Because to this congregation, it wasn't about the building. It was about what goes on in the building. It was about the faithfulness of God. You know, we've always looked at buildings sort of like the relationship of a lunch sack to the lunch 
What's important about a sack lunch isn't the bag, isn't the sack. It's about the lunch, what's inside. And one of the great things about this congregation is that you've always made it about being fed the Word of God, not about the lunch sack. It's not always that way. For a lot of people, uh, church is the place where they get hatched, matched, and dispatched. That's about it. It's just a place. It's a building. As I stand here today, I look at the courtyard, the uh, campus. It's a beautiful sack. It's a great place to do God's business. But what it reminds me of is that we have a great God who keeps his great promises. Now, from my perspective, I'm looking back to different episodes. I'm thinking of the Lakes Apartments this morning. And I don't know how many were around back then. Let's just take a, a little poll. How many were in the Lakes Apartments? Well, we have just a couple, but you made it. <laughs> I remember the first Bible study with four people. It was me. It was my wife, Linnea. It was uh, our good friend and co-worker in the ministry, Kent Bagdazar, and one guest. We had one guest that first Bible study, and it was the first and last time he came. <laughs> I remember 1660 Eubank, as you saw in the little video just a moment ago. And I remember going in there and talking to the owner of the building, and he told me how much it would cost per month to rent, and I said, we can't afford that. He said, tell you what, pay me what you can afford, and you can occupy. And I said, great, that's the Lord. And he said, see, the way I figure it is, when it comes judgment day, that God's going to push me over into heaven because I've given you such a good deal. And then I thought, oh, no, now I've got to tell him the truth. And I told him, I said, you won't make it to heaven by your works, and this won't be one of the things that pushes you over into heaven. And I'm going, here goes, but I've blown the deal. And he said, now nah, you can occupy anyway. And then I look over to 9610 Snow Heights, And I remember when we were just ready to occupy that building that Mark McAllister and I were told that we weren't up to code, that those who built the building didn't quite finish it right, and we had to kind of start from scratch. But I remember the Lord being faithful. We got in on time. And I remember the first Sunday because the previous building was half that size, and we thought this place is going to be way too big because it sat 900 seats. And the first Sunday, when we thought it's going to be half empty, it packed out. And I remember my wife, Lenya, as she saw people coming, she said to the Lord under her breath, Stop it, Lord. You can't bless this much. We don't know what to do. We can't handle it. Then I remember needing to get a new building because the owner of that building was taking us to court and going to sue us because we put in some fire doors. That's a whole other story. But we looked at this place, and it seemed so big. In fact, a couple of members of my board said, this is not the Lord. We can't occupy this building. This is three acres. This building is way too big. And one of them suggested we should find another church and go in half with them. 
One of the memories I have was walking through this sanctuary one afternoon and I saw a man all alone walking over in this section. He had gray hair, looked distinguished. I introduced myself and he was a pastor in this town and he said, Skip, uh, I've been in town for many, many years, even before you came. And for years I prayed that the Lord would do a magnificent work in this town and I always thought it was going to be through me. And then you showed up. And he said, I am just glad that God has done this work in this town and that I've been a part to be able to see it. I saw a humble man of God who prayed and God answered his prayers. But I hope, back to our point here, I hope that when you enter these doors and when you sit down and the Bible is opened and songs are sung, that it will remind you of God's keeping His promises and that you'll leave here saying, God has given me so many promises and I'm going to live by them. You know how many promises are in the Bible? One guy from Kirchner, Canada, Everett Storms, read the Bible through 26 times. It took him a year and a half. And he tallied up all the promises that God made to to mankind. He counted over 7,000 promises God made to you and I. Here's my question to you. What do you do with those promises? Now, if you answer, I underline them. That's a good start, but that's not the right answer. If you say, I memorized them. That's good, but you've got to take it a step further. If your answer is, I live by them, bingo, you got it. That's exactly what we ought to do. Living by, and you see, there's a great old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. Too many church people aren't standing on the promises. They're just sitting on the premises. No, the, the building is to point us to the faithfulness of God. When America was being settled a couple hundred years ago, the Mississippi River was ice in the early winter, and a a pioneer traveler was trying to go across that river. He didn't know how thick the ice was, so he got on his hands and knees and he started crawling across the river to distribute his weight. Then he heard the sound of singing behind him. He turned, and there was a man driving a a horse-drawn carriage full of coal, and he drove it right across the icy river. And here's the man on his hands and knees. And he's realizing, hey, this is pretty thick. I, I could stand. I don't have to crawl. And so he got up and he walked his way all the way across the river, standing up, knowing this is strong enough. What's your position like? Are you singing confidently, standing on the promises of God, or are you creeping on the promises? Or worse yet, sitting on the premises. So buildings should point to God's faithfulness. Now I'm going to take you down to verse 25 and read a few more verses. Buildings should do something else. Number two, buildings should portray God's matchlessness. For Solomon in verse 26 says, And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? For behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. You know, the temple was impressive, but it wasn't that big. 
The temple that Solomon built, it was only 2,700 square feet. Some of you have homes bigger than that temple. But it was uh, very detailed in its appointments and very expensive. The workforce was 183,000 men to build it. 80,000 hewers of stone and 3,300 supervisors. I'd want to be one of them, honestly, because of the stone involved. It was a white limestone. It was cedar wood from Lebanon. It was a gold, very, very ornate. And uh, it's estimated that by today's cost, just that single structure was $11 million. That's 2,700 square feet. That makes it about $4,000 per square foot. Very expensive, ornate building. One of the noticeable features was as you approached the temple, these two freestanding brass columns, 34 feet tall, and they were given names. Yaquin, which means God establishes, and Boaz, which means in God is strength. It's estimated that if you were to build the temple today and all of its surrounding structures, courtyards, if you were to... uh, Consider all of the labor as well as the elements like silver, gold, brass, silk vestments for thousands of priests, musical instruments, that the total cost today would be $174 billion. I don't know how accurate that is. That's just something I read. Take it or leave it. But what's so great about the temple? Besides it being so magnificent, is it for God? Is it for Him? You see, even Stephen reminded the Jews... In Acts chapter 7, the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. When I was a boy growing up in our church, my mom would tell me, don't you run in church. This is the house of God. And I'd look around and go, it is? He lives here? He wants to live here? It's not for God. You're the house of God. God lives in temples called human beings, His church. This is where God dwells. This isn't really for Him. This is for people to gather, to worship, to sing, to study the Bible. It's made for people. Now look down in verse 28. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. I call this a corporate dependence on God's transcendence. That's what the temple did. It it reminded them of the matchlessness of God. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The heavens and the heavens of heaven can't contain God. But when we gather together, it reminds me of who I am and who God is. And in the next several verses, we won't read it. It's too long. Solomon says, we depend on you for pardon from our sins. We depend on you for protection from our enemies. And we depend on you for provision for our needs. You're matchless, God. You can do anything. Now, 
If when I come into this building, if I am reminded of two things, God's transcendence and my dependence, then the building has served its purpose. Because I come in here and it points me higher to God's resources. I want you briefly, quickly, to turn with me to Psalm 73 for just a moment. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. He worked in the temple. And he was going through a crisis in his life where he looked around at the world and he saw that the wicked were prospering and the righteous weren't, it looked like in his view. He was all upset. He was in despair because he thought, why should I serve God? God's people are oppressed, persecuted. And he goes through all of these rantings in Psalm 73 until he gets to verse 17. Look at it. Verse 16, it was too painful for me. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. You see, here's his experience. He was at his lowest point. He was in despair. He thought, man, I ought to just be like the wicked people and live the way I want to live. Until I went into the temple. I went to church. And I got a whole new view of life in the perspective of eternity. I understood God's transcendence and my dependence. I saw the brevity of life and the need to depend on God wholly and totally. There's the value of coming to the church building. Because when I come, as I worship, as I read, I get a whole new perspective on the meaning and purpose of life. It puts God at the center. The songs I sing elevate God. The words that we read in the scripture point to God. There's a third thing that buildings ought to do. Would you turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 8? Buildings, temples, should promote our righteousness. Now Solomon is continuing his prayer of dedication. And it's ended now, verse 54, So it was when Solomon finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be God, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised, There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. 
So imagine, there's Solomon. He walks into the temple. He spreads his hands. He gets on his knees. He prays before the Lord. Then he, he stops and he turns toward the congregation and with instruction and exhortation, he tells them to live loyal, obedient lives to the Lord their God. Righteous lives. Now, in the years ahead... Solomon would watch thousands of people come in and out of that temple, bringing lambs and sacrifices and worshiping, singing. But he knew that some of those people who were coming to that temple to worship, it was just an empty experience for them. It didn't really change them. It should promote our righteousness, but it didn't always One study was measured of American Christianity, and they examined four areas of churchgoers' lives besides church attendance. See, a lot of people go, I go to church. I come to the temple. I do it regularly. This study examined four areas of churchgoers' lives besides church attendance. And this study discovered that varying levels of commitment exist. 19% of Americans are religiously committed, says this study. That is, they practice their Christian religion, as the article called it, regularly. 22% are modestly religious. 29% are barely or nominally religious. Folks, listen. The real value of church isn't to make people mildly religious. It's to make people mightily righteous, obedient, loyal-hearted to the Lord their God, to be conformed to the commandments of God. Paul the Apostle, Romans chapter 12 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the way the Phillips translation puts it. Don't let this world squeeze you into its own mold. Here's my point. We should leave church every week different than when we walked in. Otherwise, it's an invalid experience. Did you know that in the prophet Jeremiah's day, the temple attendance was at its peak, and Jeremiah the prophet saw people walk into the temple day in and day out? And in Jeremiah, the prophet said to them, Do not trust in lying vanities, saying... The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. He says, thus saith the Lord, amend your ways, change your life. You see, these people were coming to the temple saying, wasn't that sermon great by the priest today? Wasn't this singing awesome? But their lives never changed. One person put it this way, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. That is, what we learn in the excitement of worship in this place and all the activities should conform us to the image of Christ. A couple years ago, I was in India with some missionaries. They were talking about the excitement of mission work and how the gospel was spreading in their churches and how large they were and how exciting they were. And they were comparing numbers. And one veteran pastor walked up to these two men having a conversation. And he said, Brothers, when are you going to stop living in the book of Numbers and start living in the book of Acts? 
And I thought, this guy has it. It's not about numbers. It's about the acts done by those numbers. It's the righteousness that is produced because they gather. That's why this church has been committed and still is committed by your pastor to take you through the Bible week by week every time we meet. Finally, fourthly, buildings should prompt our happiness. They should prompt our happiness. Look at the last part of this chapter, verse 65 and 66. At that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days, their building dedication was a long one. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. You know, there was a time in history when it was thought that the more anemic and sad you looked, the more holier you were. So if you look dour and depressed... People said, you must be a Christian. Isn't that sad? (laughs) Who wrote those rules? Not God. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I would have entered the ministry except all the clergymen I know look like undertakers. (laughs) That's sad. In the New Testament, when Paul speaks about part of our worship as giving financially, He says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I would say, I'd add to that, because I don't think I'm adding to the Word of God. God loves a cheerful liver. And I don't mean (laughs) the one next to your spleen. But He loves the one who lives on the promises of God with joy. To be around some people who call themselves Christians, it's like witnessing an autopsy. They tell you about God, and they don't sound very excited about Him, and they talk about Jesus and the gospel. And uh, at the end of their conversation, you're convinced whatever you do in life, you don't want to be like them. If this is how they turned out, there's no joy. Now, I grew up going to church, going to the building every Sunday. I had to do it. It's not something I wanted to do. I wanted it to be over so I could have some fun. I wanted to have some joy. Like the little kid, seven years old, went to Sunday school and he finally said to the teacher, he said, "Uh, hurry up, this is boring. And a little girl next to him was kind of appalled by that and elbowed the little boy and said, shut up, this is church. It's supposed to be boring. (laughs) At Calvary of Albuquerque, we have always wanted to glorify Jesus Christ, honor God, but have fun. Enjoy our relationship with Him together. You know, 18 times in the Psalms, the Bible says, Make a joyful noise, or make a joyful shout unto the Lord. Be joyful. That's a mandate from God. Charles Spurgeon said, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful people is in keeping with His nature. Have you noticed that bars have happy hours? That's what church ought to be on Sunday. This is happy hour. We're in God's presence. We're with God's people. 
God's going to speak to our hearts, change our lives, equip us to go out and meet the needs of a dying world. Somebody once said, by the way, I love the way you sing to the Lord. I always have. And for those who come and just kind of watch and they say, well, I shouldn't sing because I don't have a very good voice and I don't want people around to, uh, to uh, hear my voice. You might find that when you sing, even if you have a bad voice, your bad voice might cause people to sing a lot louder around you <laughs> for obvious reasons. It could be really cool. I went to a retreat one time where the instructor said, if you have a good voice that the Lord blessed you with, honor him with it and sing loud. And if you have a bad voice, give it back to him. (laughs) Over in India, up in the north, in a town called Agra, is one of the most magnificent temples ever constructed. It's called the Taj Mahal. Speaking about temples, people look at that, still to this day, they... They drop their jaws when they see it. But here's the real catch. It's not built as a temple. It was built as a tomb. The story is that the Mughal emperor, the Shah, Jahan, built this as an expensive gravestone for his wife who died. He so mourned her death and wanted her to be remembered that he decided, I'm going to build the most magnificent tomb ever. So he put her casket in an open field, and the building around it commenced. He was so into this project that it consumed him, and soon he forgot about his dead wife, didn't even mourn her any longer. One day on the construction site, the Shah was looking through the plans and hurrying from one side of the temple to the other, and his leg bumped into a large box. He didn't know what it was, but he got angry and he ordered that box be removed and discarded. It was his wife's casket. He was so into the building that he forgot the reason it was built. Now, two types of people. There are temple gazers and there are savior seekers. And you find them both often in the same church. One sees the structure and says, wow, what a great church. The other sees the Savior and says, wow, what a great Christ. It's not a building. It's not a man. It's not a movement. It's a God who is great. That's the purpose of a building. And that's the one we dedicate this to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. This is just a bunch of carpet, stone, glass, metal, beautifully arranged and designed. But that's all it is. It's a lunch sack. What goes on in this sack, the lunch itself, is much more important than the surrounding. Lord, I pray that we, as your people, would always honor you in this place. This place that should point to your faithfulness, that should portray your matchlessness, that should promote our righteousness, that should prompt our joyfulness. We dedicate it to you, Lord. Use it to the max. Let it continue to be a lighthouse to this state and this nation. 
Lord, thank you for all of those people, all of your people who have put so much time and energy over the years to it. Bless Pastor Pete, Dave, and Bob, and Chip, and all of the staff pastors and all of the staff work so diligently and so hard and who love you and honor you. And so we lift up our voices and say to God be the glory, great things he hath done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.